0: If you're a founder building a company, you're going to eventually have to start hiring executives to help you scale. The people you bring into your leadership team can make or break your startup. I'm Nigel Robinson with Build Talent, and in each episode, we'll be speaking with a founder or expert as we discuss the art and science of hiring leaders, why it matters, and how you can keep up. Welcome to the Gradients Podcast. All right, folks, welcome to the Gradients Podcast. I am here with Jay Fulcher, three-time CEO, author, board member, advisor, entrepreneur. He's previously CEO at Zenefits, where he led an impressive turnaround. They were one of the most disruptive HR companies in the space. Before that, he was CEO at Uyala, which was an online video company that brought in the personalized cloud TV era. Before that, he was CEO at Agile Software, enterprise software company pioneering product lifecycle management. He is also the author of People Operations, Automate HR, Design a Great Employee Experience and Unleash Your Workforce, which is a five-time bestseller and is uh, here with us to share more about his journey and his learnings and talk a little bit about this new world of work that we're into. Thanks again for, for coming on the show, Jay.
1: You bet, Nigel. Good to see you.
0: I should mention, too, that he is now an operating partner at Cheyenne Ventures, and I'm sure we'll have some time to talk about the learnings there Out now that you're helping new companies kind of come up. But to start, what is your definition of a new world of work? What does that mean to you, and what are you seeing out there?
1: Yeah, I think in general, we're entering into a, a new era of what it takes, what it requires to build companies. And I think I'm one of the guys probably on the other side of 50 who actually doesn't lament the fact of how millennial and Gen Z and other generations sort of show up in the workforce. I actually think their contribution to what we're trying to do is a really good thing because they're holding all of us to a higher standard. You know, they're requiring, first of all, it starts with the fact that they don't want to be managed. They want to be led. (laughs) They want some level of inspiration around actually not just some level, they truly want to be inspired about the work that they're doing. And they want to make sure that the connection that they have between their company and the work that they are doing inside that company, that there's some noble purpose associated with that. And for me, at least, that kind of speaks to something that I've really worked hard at as a CEO, as a guy that has both founded some companies, but also come in and work closely with founders to take companies to another level Which is making sure that the purpose around the business is felt by everybody. And I mean, literally, everybody in the company. And where the collective values that we have around the way in which we want to treat each other, treat our, our customers and our partners, and frankly, represent ourselves to the outside world as a collective, as a company, is something that we can all understand and agree on, and that sort of thing. And of course, You know, a CEO plays a primary role in really setting that tone, putting that structure together. That's such a critical thing. And it's critical whether you got 10 employees, 100 employees, 1,000 employees. I mean, it's critical basically at whatever stage. So this new world of work, I think, is around making sure that we are understanding that we're entering into an era where the employee is more empowered than they've ever been before. They are more central to the success of a business more than ever. And frankly, leadership attitudes need to understand that. They need to embrace that. And frankly, they need to build programmatically. They need to build momentum behind helping that be the thing that propels the business forward.
0: Wow. Yeah, I like that, that idea of being managed versus being led. I can totally see that. And absolutely, we talk about the impact of having synchronization and harmony within of the value chain of your organization, as it were.
1: And Nigel, that becomes such a harder proposition when you start to think about remote work, you start to think about the fact that, right, I hear from a lot of my peers, people that are sort of relatively my age and have been doing this for as long as I have. And they all talk about that somehow we're going to go back to normal, whatever normal was prior to March of 2020. And for what it's worth, I'm constantly telling them, we're never going back. Yeah. This is a new era. We're in a new world of work. And if if your leadership skills were reliant on making sure you could see physically your employees in the office every single day, you probably were kind of a shitty leader in the first place.
0: <laughs> yeah. And it's, I mean, it's not going well for you in this landscape for sure. Right. I agree that there is never any going back. Like we only ever go forward. So all of that right. adaptation is critical. And so, and you were a CEO all along the way, like what are some of the ways that you had to adapt as a leader or the way that you found new tactics to kind of engage, to keep that North Star burning bright and keep people energized and inspired?
1: Yeah, I think the the first thing that I would point out, and and I'd be remiss if I didn't kind of start there, is that by the time I was 30 years of age, I'd already had some really iconic leaders that had taken me under their wing. And so I had a really, really good network of people. I worked for Dave Duffield and O'Neill Bushry at PeopleSoft before they started Workday. Wow. I worked directly for Hasso Plotner at SAP in the early wow. days when SAP had just come to the U.S. And so I learned so much in the formative years of my career around how to lead, around how to basically build momentum behind a business culture that is all about business performance. So I think first and foremost, to answer your question, you know, it really, I'd encourage everybody to really think through how do I both build a network of that kind of support? And then also how do I proactively spend time maintaining and cultivating that network? Because having places you can go to for advice and counsel and quite frankly, to basically challenge you on kind of your belief systems and the things that you're doing and the priorities that you've set is just a really, really healthy thing. So that was the first thing. So I really was lucky to have had a network, but I really worked very hard at making sure that I continued to cultivate that network. I think the second thing around just the leadership dynamic was I made it a point to be a student of business models and really understanding What kind of makes, especially in my case, a a tech business go? What are the elements of a highly successful SaaS business and what drives those elements? And how do we kind of put the right people and the right policies and the right business dimensions in place to make sure that the business has the best opportunity, the best shot at being a high-performance business? And so the understanding those business models innately is really, really critical. A lot of the mentoring work I do, a lot of the startups that I work with, they oftentimes have more work to do in terms of studying some of these elements. Pretty much every one of these companies has some kind of a problem either around their go-to-market, around their product market fit or around their actual business model, you know, in terms of what's actually making the company grow. Right. I've almost never seen a startup, including some companies now that are public companies that are huge and iconic, who didn't have problems in one or even more of those areas. So really understanding specifically at a detailed level, each of those areas is really critical. And then the last part around the leadership thing is just the importance of people, right? I mean, yeah people are what make all of it happen. And I've built a whole career around trying to be somebody who has a reputation for building not just good, but phenomenal leadership teams. And that actually has to be, I think, a primary focus at every stage of the company's development. It can never not be a priority. And so I think the, the last part is just making sure that you've got the right people in the right jobs doing the right things, which, of course, is a really difficult thing to to get right.
0: Yeah, I was going to ask, like, whether you're talking about the go-to-market problem or the product development problem, like on our side of the table, we try and solve business problems with talent, essentially, like to your point, putting the right people in the right place at the right time to be able to crack those codes. How have you seen that play out at your level of running like larger orgs when you have maybe less insight into what's happening on this side of the business, or you have to relinquish a x amount of control to let them run with that. Like, what do you look for to build that phenomenal team? Like, what are some of the signals that you tend to rely on?
1: First of all, as you can appreciate, right? It's a multifaceted, pretty layered mm-hmm. set of things that have to be looked at. So I'm completely oversimplifying when sure. I, I try to answer that question. But I think generally the first thing is that any leader, whether it's a founder or an operational leader, you know, somebody that's got domain expertise and a mandate in a specific area of the business, any of these leaders really have to become in a very detailed way, particularly conversant in all of the specifics of what's going on in these different areas. So as an example, around product market fit, you've got to have a really good understanding around not just the value proposition, but very specifically, What does it take for us to be able to reliably produce and execute to the roadmap that we've developed for our product or service? And how do we continue to be very proactive about trying to understand and anticipate the blind spots that we're going to have along the way? In order to be able to do that really, really well, in order to put the right people in the right jobs as we were talking about, you've got to, first of all, really understand what that roadmap looks like. And you've got to have at least an ability. And of course, there's a lot of unknowns that you can never anticipate, but you've got to the best of your ability, you've got to really have, I think, a good understanding of that. And it can't be something that you do from a distance. You actually have to be in the business. And that requires a lot of interrogation. It requires a lot of working with people at the most, at the coal face. In the case of the roadmap, it's the engineering group, it's the product management group, and really understanding both what's working well, what isn't working well, how do we avoid potential problems in the future? And then also the just the reliability factor, because every business right gets bogged down by things that kind of come up that you weren't necessarily ready for and that you take too long to resolve. And so this ability to be decisive is usually determined by how well are you already conversant in the details to begin with? Right. So for me, in, in some of the bigger companies that I've been in, pretty much every single three or six-month period, my chair is pivoting to a new area of the business that I maybe haven't spent a lot of time with recently, Interesting. where I'm doing kind of a deep dive to understand how things are operating, how things are working, what's holding us back, how's the organization performing, do we have leaders that are continuing to develop people underneath them, et cetera, et cetera.
0: Wow. How do you decide where to start? Especially, you know, you're coming in and maybe things are already on fire or like the machine's already in motion.
1: Yeah. So in the case of some of my businesses, especially at a small stage, the business will tell you what's working and what isn't. I've been in situations where, now we're selling a ton of software and, and we're landing a lot of new customers. And it becomes pretty obvious that it's going to come down to implementing and supporting those customers is going to be the big problem. It's not selling
0: mm. what we have. Got it.
1: In another case, in the case of Zenefits, nothing was working right. We had a founder group there that that really, really had the business on fire, a wow. business model that was never gonna scale, a customer support and customer service that was not ever going to be where it needed to be. So I had to sort of start with sort of existential issues around, first of all, how do we actually keep the business afloat? How do we keep it a going concern? And it became almost a Maslow's hierarchy of needs. You know, you yeah. sort of start with the most fundamental things that have to be in place in order to keep the business kind of where it needed to be. And then over time, one of the things that was so cool about Zenefits is we were able to go from business that was absolutely not performing and doing the things that it needed to do, by the way, based on a bunch of toxic cultural stuff that was really in a bad spot to at the time the company was acquired, a company that was not only performing and growing and really very healthy in a lot of ways, but frankly, where the culture was the thing that actually got the company to be able to turn around. So it kind of depends on size and scale, but it also kind of depends on the level of dysfunction that's going on within the business. And as I said, oftentimes the business's performance metrics will tell you where to start.
0: Yeah, where, the, where to look for the pain. Kind that's, of right. Wow. that's right. That's right.
1: Usually, finding the pain is not the the difficulty. Yeah, the big problem ends up being so. Which issue is more existential to the company's survival? Yeah, and that ends up being the one that drives kind of where's your initial focus going to be?
0: And it's tough because no matter who you ask, they're gonna, they're maybe going to think theirs is the the most existential pain. Like if you ask to go to market right. people,
1: that's right. And when you get beyond fifty million dollars in ARR. It's also important to I think lay out there that and these problems are not serial. In other words, you don't just handle them one at a time as they come. You're oftentimes handling a portfolio of issues. Right.
0: right.
1: So you don't you don't have the luxury of just focusing on one thing. You're gonna have to focus on several
0: things at once. Yeah, in it's a nexus of problems basically. That's right. It's like it's an unbundling of issues. That's right. What has this looked like from the hiring side? Like how have hiring strategies evolved? over the course of your career as a CEO?
1: Yeah, and Nigel, what a great question, because I think this might be the one area that maybe has changed more than any other area over the last 25 years, 30 years since I've been doing it. The one thing I would say is that when I first came into the business, I think the kind of hiring that was done was (laughs) leaders generally did the most lazy thing possible, which was to hire in their own image. They kind of hired people that looked like them, that maybe even went to the same schools or had uh, some of the same background. And for sure, there was sort of this comfort zone around, well, I'm going to, at the risk of sounding like using a Trumpism, you know, I'm going to go find somebody that came out of Central Casting. (laughs) That's radically changed over time. Thank God. Yeah, that's just not at all the way I've ever done it. And I think most of the best companies have understood now for some time that we need to be hiring a diverse group of folks that frankly can complement each other. I know as a, in my CEO jobs, I've really worked hard to figure out, so how do I go find some people that have skills and abilities that really are complementary to my own, where they bring some strengths and some experience that I don't already bring? And conversely, where in areas where they're looking to have an experience and and to build some capability of their own, those are areas where I know I can help them, where I know this is going to be a heavy-duty kind of a learning opportunity for them as well. That's really, I think, a big change for not just me and the, the stuff I've been doing with my companies, but I think just in general. I think people have recognized that it's actually the force multiplier of how we all come together as a team that you're trying to get right, it's not necessarily trying to in lemming style, just bring people in that kind of look like you do, operate like you do and where you sort of think that uh, you make the mistake of thinking actually that, that somehow you're gonna have, you're going be able to work in shorthand with those folks, which of course is not the case. What drives the shorthand, what drives the seamless, integrated collaboration of a great team is the culture. It's the shared values, the shared, perspective that we have about what we're building. That's the thing that makes that happen. So anyway, I think that's kind of what's changed over the course of the last two or three decades.
0: I've seen that front and center too. I remember one leader, they were a captain of their sports team in college and they hired a bunch of captains of sports teams in college, like captain of the baseball team, captain of the hockey team, and just like pattern matching to themselves, as you say. The other thing I think about here is with this new world of work, there's kind of new skills maybe or that are highlighted or more differentiated for leaders. What do you think of that? Are there different skills or are there different tactics for retention or for equipping your leaders to deal with this kind of thing?
1: I think that there are. I think that for me, I have seen that oftentimes the people that you think coming in may be best positioned to be really, really successful sometimes surprisingly are not.
0: Right.
1: And all too often, it's an Ivy Leaguer with a lot, of, a lot of education, where in the real world, when the bullets are flying, somehow the experience of being in a startup is less academic and it's more real world.
0: Right. And
1: that requires a, a certain level of, of both tenaciousness, but also just mental toughness and, and an ability to deal with a lot of the uncertainty of what a startup kind of brings with it. And not everybody's kind of built for that. And if they're not built for that, not everybody necessarily is even interested or ready to kind of take that on. And, and that leads to my second thing, which is one of the most important things, you know, this is something that a lot of people talk about. I actually think, I think Gary Vaynerchuk does a really good job of talking about this topic, by the way, funny enough, is just this notion of being self-aware is such a critical, almost superpower. Yeah, And to the degree that you can do that in your 20s and 30s and not wait until you're in your 40s or 50s to be really aware about what drives you, what you're interested in, what you're good at, where are your blind spots? How do you marry up kind of your strengths with somebody else's strengths in order to be able to get the right overall result? Those things are critical to choosing a co-founder. Those things are critical to choosing an initial leadership team and then figuring out, how that team over time is going to morph and change and adapt. And basically, at the end of the day, pretty much in any company, the people that are running it three or four years in are going to be different than the ones that, that started it initially. Right. And so being able to really use self-awareness as a superpower, as something that is really insightful, and I don't mean that around harping on necessarily the insecurities or the things that are not strengths. It's just more understanding and acknowledging what those things are and having it be something that you can actually talk about. Yeah. I think is a huge differentiator for the businesses to kind of figure out how to use that in a positive, helpful, personal development sort of a way and not in a way where it ends up being political or it ends up being one of those situations where all of a sudden you see dysfunction or toxicity uh, start to arise inside of a company. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, for sure. We talk to our founders a lot about being vulnerable and and being humble, like the power of humility and vulnerability when talking to candidates, like really tell them about your problems, like tell them about what's going on at the company, tell them where you think you could be doing better. Exactly, exactly. So like they go hand in hand and It's hard. And we've talked to a bunch of talent partners and a bunch of founders at this point about this. And that's something that I think a lot of people come back to is is that self-awareness and the way to leverage that self-awareness is like not only being able to find complimentary counterparts, but being able to have the humility to know when this person is good at the thing you're not good at, or, you know, they may be more experienced, but that's what your business needs. Exactly. What are the most common mistakes that you've seen out there? Because you've worked at large companies, you're an advisor, you're a mentor to a lot of other founders. What are the common failure modes that you see from people, not just as they take on this new world of work, but as they go to hire their first leadership people?
1: I think, again, this is one of those where, you know, the issues sometimes are all over the map. As yeah, first there's
0: to a lot show, of nuance and color I, in there. I think yeah. that
1: there are some common ones. Number one, I think generally founders, oftentimes, founders, leaders. When I say founders, sometimes it's not necessarily somebody that technically founded the company, but they've come in very much on the heels of the company being founded to become a leader in that company, which for all intents and purposes, they are a founding member of the business. And I see those folks in some ways delegate some of the key recruiting that's gonna happen. They're relying on a board member. They're relying on a, for God's sake, a venture capitalist or a private (laughs) equity company to help them find talent. And I think those sources can be helpful, but you can't actually delegate the responsibility of those people to actually bring talent into your company without you absolutely having a hand in that. And so I would urge any founder or leader that you've really got to understand and, and recognize that the recruiting part of the responsibility that you have requires your personal attention. It requires you to be really all over. Now, I'm literally right up until the time that my company was acquired, any new executive hiring we were doing, I did the reference checks. Wow. I didn't leave that to my recruiting firm. Yeah. I didn't leave it me the to my feedback, HR department. You know?
0: yeah.
1: yeah, that just doesn't work. And so I would just really... I guess I would probably belabor the fact that it really requires a a certain level of personal attention to get the recruiting right. And you've got to require that, I think, of your team as well. You know, that's something that everybody's just got to...
0: Yeah, now you're preaching to the choir. Yeah,
1: I think the other thing that I would say that just kind of comes to mind quickly around things that I see that are pretty problematic, oftentimes there's the notion of letting problems and difficulties fester. And so I would just say that one of the things that I've always taken a lot of pride in around my kind of reputation is I think I'm decisive. And so I tell people all the time, I've never fired somebody fast enough. (laughs) By the time I fired them, it's already late. And so I've always tried to, not in a knee-jerk way, not in a way that's irresponsible, but we all in companies have less time than we think we do to get things right and to get things going in the direction they need to go. And you never have the luxury of time at your disposal in the way that you think you do. And so you don't want to, especially as athletes will know what I'm talking about when I say this, but you don't want a lot of false hustle. That's not helpful. That's, you get get people hurt when you, when you do those kinds of things, yeah. but you do need to act decisively and you do need to not be somehow not paying attention or not wanting to look at the things that are potentially problematic in the business that need attention. Yeah. And I see that pretty regularly, Nigel, where companies sort of know they have this issue, whether it's a person or whether it's a department or whether it's something related to their business model, and they sort of just want to work on the stuff that's going well. right? And they don't really want to solve the thing that, frankly, is going to eventually fester into being a much bigger issue than it ever needed to be. Mostly because they didn't solve it in the moment.
0: Right. They don't go away. They just incubate.
1: (laughs) They do. And they begin to reproduce.
0: Right. Wow. No, I can see that for sure of like psychologically why that would be an easy mistake to make. It's like, well, these other things are going good. Let me just focus on those things. Especially when it comes to a person, you, you talk about time, but also just like maybe underestimating how much damage can be done in a short amount of time with the wrong person in the wrong position.
1: And then the the last thing I would just say quickly, right? Because I think there's a third one that just occurs to me, which is, I really think that in today's day and age too, it's really critical that when you do hire someone, you've got to empower them to be successful. Your best performers and the people that are going to add the most value to your business don't really want to be micromanaged day to day or week to week. And so you've got to find a cadence, a way of working that keeps you intimate with the details and clear on the priorities. And yet at the same time, you got to give that person the room and the space they need to execute well and to do it the way that they are uniquely capable of doing it. And getting that cadence or that distance right far enough away that that person's got the room to maneuver, but close enough so that you can be of value to them, yeah. that's a really a critical piece. And I see that go wrong pretty regularly.
0: Yeah, there's something that I think we've seen where if it's a product CEO, they have a little bit of harder time letting go of product when the product leader comes in. If they're a technical CEO, they have a little bit of harder time letting go of engineering when the engineering leader comes in. And yeah, finding that balance of being able to let them run, but still make sure that you're filtering back all of the feedback that's necessary.
1: And then conversely, if you're a sales or marketing CEO, being way too far away from the product issues.
0: Right, wow. Because yeah. you're
1: so focused on the go-to-market thing. And so so it works in both directions. You know, yeah. it, you want to be close enough and intimate enough to be able to add value, but not so distant that you actually don't even know what's going on. And I've seen that in a lot of companies over the years.
0: Wow, yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense that they're leaning also means, if they're leaning toward this thing, that means they're probably also leaning away from this other thing at That's times. Right. Wow. Yeah, no, that's insightful. We got like 10 minutes. I want to hear a little bit about this book that you wrote. Can you tell us more about it yeah. and, and kind of what you were trying to accomplish?
1: Yeah, People Operations was a book that I actually co-authored with the CMO at the time at Zenefits, Kevin Marasco, and the chief people officer at the time, which was Tracy Cote. And the three of us kind of came together because we sort of felt like this was a point in time where it could be really powerful to begin to talk about the changes that are now underway around how HR is perceived inside of any organization. You know, the the old ideas about HR being the internal policy police yeah. and somehow being in some ways an obstruction to the business are so outdated and it's a figment of, of a prior time. And there's a lot of good stuff that's out there, but we felt like there was an opportunity for us to write some things that kind of talked about what we're seeing with the 35,000 customers that Zenefits had who have been building in a small business context a very different model for how HR shows up in these companies, where in fact, HR can serve to be a place of propulsion of the business, right? It's It's around getting talent into the company. It's around growing and developing that talent. It's acknowledging that, learning and professional development are critical to any employee feeling great about where they work it's typically that and their manager are the, are the biggest reasons why somebody leaves eventually and so that's what we sort of wrote about was basically how to think about hr in a different context how to begin to create a, an employee experience around the life cycle i just described that looks quite a bit different than a lot of us experienced up until maybe the last three or four years. And then ultimately, some of the metrics that we measure with our customers around how that approach drives business performance, right? It actually creates an opportunity for these companies to be way more successful than they otherwise would be. So that's the net of the book. And I have to say, we sort of use it as a point of thought leadership. Yeah. Because it's a, a chance for Zenefits in a world where there's just so much noise in the HR space with so many HR companies doing so many different things that we were hoping that, you know, this would just be an opportunity for us to be able to provide something of value to our customers and our prospects and our partners. Yeah. We had no clue it would be as well-received as it was. So
0: Yeah, the wider ecosystem really took it in.
1: Yeah, and so we felt like, I have to be honest about the fact that we didn't know this going in, but I think coming out of it, it's like, okay, these are some concepts, these are some ideas whose time has come.
0: Yeah, and that's what I think is most interesting about it, too, is before you can come up with a new model, you need to come up with a new way of thinking. Like, you need a mindset shift that unlocks your ability to then think about tactically, strategically, how to move forward.
1: Yeah, one of the things I'll just share with you quickly, a lot of times I hear from founders and management teams, but mostly CEOs, and these are companies of all sizes, who talk to me about organizational structure, and they've got HR reporting somewhere else other than to the CEO. Oh, to interesting! Me, that just sends a bunch of signals. Yeah, red flag. I, I don't know what asset you have that you think is more important than your workforce, but it's not your product, it's not your customers, yeah. it's not your partners, it's not the cash you have in the bank. The most important thing you have is your team. Yeah. So anyway, I, I have some strong opinions about no, man, I that, that. I
0: love that. I love that. That's got to
1: go right into the CEO. That's got to go right at to the top of the organization. Yeah. And the investors and the board members and everybody else that's backing that company have to feel like they've got a very good and direct connection to the workforce. Otherwise, I think you're failing.
0: Yeah. I mean, without the people, there's no one building the product. Without the people, totally. there's no one selling the product, etc. Totally.
1: Yeah. Are there
0: commonly held beliefs about this new world of work that you disagree with? I know you, you know, you've no shortage of opinions. You've taken a lot of time to think about these things. Are there other kind of faux best practices that are out there that you think people are are doing the wrong way?
1: I think that companies today that are spending a lot of time over architecting and overthinking quote, the hybrid workplace. Hmm. I've heard some models that blow my mind where they're expecting (laughs) people to like clock in and out a certain amount of hours, to be in a local geography office, especially industries where, quite frankly, it's not required, right? Where Mm -hmm. working virtually and remotely is completely doable. Some industries, that's not possible, but some industries, clearly it is possible. In fact, clearly it's actually been a positive development, not a negative development in terms of business performance and in terms of employee retention and all all the other things that people pay attention to. So I think overthinking some of that is a big problem. And so I'm I'm somebody that's sort of very much on the let's embrace this new way of working. Let's understand that we're going to need to develop new leadership capabilities, new leadership techniques to manage employees that we're not going to see very often, at least in person. And so I think that's kind of one area that I would just point out that I think is sort of still a, a situation where people are kind of holding on to the past versus yeah. kind of the future.
0: Do you feel that you feel like people should choose a side of the fence, like be on site or be remote, or is it just that there are hybrid models that are more and less effective?
1: Yeah, I think there's a variety of options and companies have to figure out what works for them. And some of this has to do with the culture that the company has had versus sure. their culture, the potential they want to have. I don't know how many businesses sit around thinking through the cultural adaptation over time that they want to have, but they need right. to be doing that. Right. And again, there's no one right answer. And I, I certainly wouldn't suggest that hybrid is not necessarily something that is worthy and, and should be considered. I'm just suggesting that some of the things that I see behind the scenes are people really over-architecting the rules of the road and the policies right. around how we're going to quote unquote manage our employees. Yeah, yeah. And it's yeah. kind of back to how we started off exactly. this podcast. Rather than manage them, let's work on how we're going to lead them. Yeah. Let's work on how we're going to inspire them to do their best work. Let's make sure that they're not spending two and a half hours every single fucking day commuting. Yeah. Let's, yeah. let's figure that kind of stuff out because that's ultimately going to get us, I think, a better work product. And I think it's going to get us, frankly, a a happier, more inspired group of people that are coming together all the time, whether it's virtual or, or whether it's physical, to be able to go get done what we want to go get done.
0: Yeah, I mean, especially today, like you're saying, like, I absolutely know people that have walked away from offers because they didn't want to commute. They don't have to anymore, like. There's another offer over here where that's not a part of the... Totally. Yeah. yeah. And so
1: for me, at least at the leadership level, it's like, so let's get out ahead of these issues and let's get smarter about how we're going to go attack them. And for sure, there needs to be some room for some experimentation. We're going to go sort of see how this works along the way. But I don't know that we necessarily need to over-architect it. And for sure, again, back to another theme that we talked about earlier so let's be decisive about this. Let's not yeah. just let this fester yeah. and let it work itself out naturally over time because what that probably means is your best people end up leaving the company.
0: Yeah, as a part of that experiment of uh, just let it work itself out. Yeah, I could see that.
1: I used to tell my team all the time, if we'll actually shut up and listen, our employees will tell us the right things to do. Yeah. And you've got to have the courage and the humility, something you said earlier, you got to have the humility to spend some time listening and recognizing that you don't have to have all the answers, but you do need to listen and pay attention to what other people's views might be about, how do we actually win? Because I think oftentimes, at least in my companies, my employees had a a really good understanding of how to win.
0: Yeah, I always think that it's really the deep listening that allows you to find the right questions to get the right answers. And so if you're not doing the listening part, you're only really doing half the equation. Well said. Closing round. Who in the world of startups, of people, of of recruiting, of founders, would you want to give a shout out to, give some flowers to? Who out there do you have a high level of respect for who's maybe newer on the stage?
1: Man, there's just so many. There's there's just so many really cool, interesting companies that are being led by folks that oftentimes uh, they don't necessarily have a a really long track record, but they are spending a lot of time.
0: You can, give a, you can give a few. You can give like your, you know, your little pantheon of people that you uh, got your eye on these days.
1: Yeah. I mean, there's a variety of different small companies. I don't, I don't know how, I don't know how they'll react to being called out or not, but there's some really cool businesses that I think are doing a good job around sort of purpose and mission and that kind of thing. James Nielsen is a guy that used to work with me and was a part of our team together at Uyala that's doing a lot of SDR and AE development work and getting those people basically trained up and ready to be then absorbed into the workplace. I think James has done a really cool job of building what was a, a fairly little company and is now starting to really be a company with some momentum, which is which is really fun to see Mike Gonzalez is the guy that was at Zenefits who's started a business that's basically helping finance teams use the strategy work and the annual budgeting process as a lever for really getting a lot of the hard stuff right about what are our priorities and where are we going to invest and how are we going to spend our time and energy. Mike started the company with his brother. I just think it's really interesting that it's not just solving an enterprise problem like budgeting or spend right. management or all the different enterprise categories we talk about, but it's really around making the strategy job for an early stage company easier. The work that we've got to do around competing priorities, because because that's really one of the key issues that really never goes away. Is, yeah. like, how do we actually balance the various things that we want to go do? So those would be a couple of examples. I got lots of them.
0: Those are good. Lord knows there's competing priorities, especially at the yeah. smaller companies. I like that a lot.
1: Yeah. And, and invariably, you've got to force rank what matters most right now versus all the other things. And it doesn't mean those other things aren't critical. Right. It just means that at some point, you got to start somewhere.
0: Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And, and then what is time. a book that or podcast that you're reading or listening to right now that's really doing it for you?
1: Okay. This is going to be a complete right turn, right? So but good. that's good. That's good for podcasts. Yeah. I am reading a book right now that has nothing really to do with business, but everything to do with business called The Untethered Soul.
0: Okay, okay.
1: It's around self-awareness. It's around being able to understand this voice in your head and how to potentially use that voice in your head as a force for good, not a force for holding you back. I like that. It's a very good book. It's a very deep book. It takes some time to get through it but I'm in the middle of the untethered soul. It's a great, it's a great read.
0: I love it. It's a critical concept. I mean, you got to live forever with this thing up here. So,
1: <laughs> and it is your instrument, right? It yeah. does drive. I like that the instrument. show up every single day with what you're doing. And so all of us need to tune that instrument. That's
0: right. That's right. Man, that's powerful. We're also going to drop uh, Jay's book, People Operations in the description for people who want to check that out. But Jay, this is fantastic. We got a lot out of you. We appreciate you spending the time.
1: Yeah, Nigel, great to be with you. I I enjoyed the conversation. Look forward to doing it again sometime.
0: Yeah, yeah. Round two is always there. All right, Jay. Good. Thank you again. Cheers.
1: You bet. Peace.
0: The Gradients is brought to you by Build Talent. To find out more about us, head to buildtalent.io and make sure to search for The Gradients in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcast, Spotify, or anywhere else podcasts are found. Click follow so you don't miss out on any future episodes. And on behalf of everyone here at Build, thanks for listening.